0: Aloha and welcome back to SUP FM. My name's Simon Hutchinson, and in the SUP FM podcast every week, I chat to people who can inspire and add to your experience of SUP. What you'll find in every episode is a conversation with someone who's either done something incredible in the sport or who can give you some knowledge, insights, and help which will benefit you whenever you're on the water. This episode is sponsored by Starboard. Starboard has a reputation for constant innovation and development, and this is woven through their organisation, particularly their board and their paddle design. Starboard has always been behind stand-up paddling, and it continues to strongly support and develop the sport. They're strong innovators and produce quality products, but they're also relentlessly working to eliminate their carbon footprint through recycling bottles into bags and turning fishing nets into paddles and are invested in planting mangrove trees, which are a highly effective way of fixing carbon. They were one of the world's first companies to calculate their plastic footprint and set up a plastic offset programme. And they're working to become carbon past positive and balance not only their current carbon footprint, but their entire 25 years of business, and you can find out more about Starboard through their website through the link in the show notes. We hope that you're already following us on Instagram, which is where we spend most of our time, and also on Facebook. But you can keep it old school by signing up to our SUP FM email newsletter. And if you do sign up, then as a thank you, you'll also get our free guide to our favourite apps. Which are the ones that we use on the water and which help us to keep safe and informed? And you can subscribe by heading over to our website, supfmpodcast.com. This week, I speak with Lizzie La Ballastier, environmentalist and executive coach, as we harvest her knowledge and her experience of protecting sea mammals and the ocean. And we find out about her role as an executive coach using the water as a means to improve performance and mental health. We talk about the increasing number of encounters with ocean wildlife and what we can do as paddle boarders to reduce and to eliminate the serious harm we can unintentionally do to these beautiful animals. You may recognise Lizzie's name because she went viral this summer where there was international coverage of her attempts to help a stranded And lost walrus called Wally recover, get fit and fat before he made his way back to the Arctic, which is where he should have been. Lizzie is also a leader in the coaching world, working with executives and Olympians. She's an expert in blue health and she talks about the ocean and how it allows her to inspire others to change and to tap into their own blue minds. So there's lots to learn and enjoy in this chat with environmentalist and executive coach, Lizzie La Ballastier. Hey Lizzie, welcome to SUP FM. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Well, it's great to have you on. So where are you speaking to us from? Would it be anywhere near the water by any chance?
1: I think I'm about 800 metres from the water at the moment. So I'm in Perrenporth in North Cornwall.
0: Fabulous. And Perrenporth, of course, is familiar to a large amount of holidaymakers in the UK. And for those outside, it kind of serves as a similar coastline to that featured in the series Poldark, isn't it? It's all beautiful rocky coasts and wonderful unspoilt coastlines.
1: Very definitely. I'd say um, if you were US-based, I think west coast of the US, so uh, round between Santa Cruz and San Francisco, that sort of area, it's it's a rocky yeah, rocky coastline with some amazing golden beaches on it and um, and some lovely waves. So not necessarily always ideal for a very calm stand-up paddle, but it certainly is a
0: beautiful beach. Absolutely, and uh, very familiar to those coastline communities of Monterey where there's so much wildlife over there on the, the west coast of, of the US. Well, it's great to have you on because as a guest, you've got some serious experience across a couple of areas which are of direct interest for members of our growing sub-tribe. One is about Blue Mind and Blue Health and your specialism about using the ocean and the water as a, a method to, to coach clients to achieve their well-formed life outcomes. And then there's something else that, that you've developed over the years, which is working with the British Divers Marine Life Rescue, where you've been there to provide help to wildlife. And it appears that there's no shortage of help that needs giving but before we start, it'd be great to find out about your outdoors background and particularly your water and ocean background, because there's no question that water is an essential part of your life. When did you first notice a fascination with water?
1: So that's that's a great question, because that goes beyond memory, really. Um, if you think we're all, all automatically and very wired to be connected with water. I think the first time that I consciously recognized quite how powerful water was for me was back in childhood, really. Um, like many people's childhoods during the, during the 70s, um, it was a sketchy, sketchy way to grow up. Um, and I used to go to the beach and spend a lot of time at the beach as a very young child. Uh, my dad used to take us to the beach while he went off flying. Um, he, was, he used to fly as his recreation. And we were kind of wild children, a little bit feral. And basically the beach was a place of solace and fun and play and exploring and curiosity. So since childhood, the beach has been very, very deeply something that comes through who I am and connection with nature as part of that, because we'd go and explore the wildlife and um, the streams and rivers around the coastline of North Cornwall as children. So not necessarily professionally mm-hmm. connected in, at that stage in life, but certainly right from childhood, water and the ocean were very, very important parts of my life.
0: And that sets out our passions in life. And uh, we'll talk later on about the role that um, the water has on all of our lives, um, whether we realise it or not. But how do you interact with water at the moment? Obviously, you've mentioned that you're 800 yards from the beach. What's your delivery methods for, for getting out there into the water? Do you surf?
1: Uh, I used to surf, yeah. So I actually moved back down to Cornwall because I loved surfing. So I basically had a plan of how can I make my work be near the beach. So I um, so mm-hmm. changed my job role deliberately to move to a place that was very near the coast. Um, but my how I use the water or how I work with the water at the moment, certainly through, a, through professional um, avenues is part of my work. But in terms of my lifestyle, I cold water swim, so I spend lots of time in the water. Cold water swimming right the way through the year, so that's not something that's just done in the summertime. I like hand planing, so I love body surfing and hand planing, so less of a stand-up surfer now, more of a hand planer. I like being in the water uh, from that perspective. In terms of my on-the-water experiences, I have a stand-up paddle board, so I stand-up paddle predominantly in calmer spaces, so I actually quite like stand-up paddling in a river location rather than a beach location, although we've got a few beaches on our south coast that are a little bit calmer. So I stand up paddle, I walk near the ocean, so I take my dog out for a walk near the ocean. So uh, there's not really a day that I wouldn't see see the sea, if you like. So it's, uh, it's very, very much part of lifestyle, and that's a, on a daily basis. So on a daily basis, pretty much I would be in the water at some point in time.
0: you tried subsurfing?
1: Uh, I have not tried subsurfing. No, I, I stand up paddle quite at quite an amateur level at this moment in time. Um, I haven't. No, I haven't. So, um, but I, but I do like taking my dog out on my stand-up paddleboard. So she is, ironically, not hugely into water. Mm. She can, she can swim, and she likes coming out on. We also have a kayak that we use for a p- paddle for plastics. So we have a kayak which was gifted to us through Odyssey Innovation to go out paddling for marine plastics, and she comes on that, and she also comes on my stand-up paddleboard. But my level of skill. Um, on my stand-up paddleboard would not would not meet with her level of comfort sitting on a stand-up paddleboard with me in
0: waves at this moment in time.
1: The two would not would <laughs> not merge well, I don't think.
0: Fair enough. There's always a, a learning process to all of this, and uh, Certainly. your comfort levels increase. And you mentioned off oh, that you had um, recently done a session uh, with red paddle boards. Just tell us a little bit about that and what you were talking about.
1: Yeah, so Red, um, Red had a Red Rideout. They're, they're an awesome company. You're probably really aware of them. They have an owner's club, and they're really focused on creating community and also looking at their sustainability. So it's a really good match to connect with Red from my perspective because they're exploring it you and know, what do they do at end of life with paddleboards, that sort of thing, and how do they make their paddleboards really sustainable and last for a long time. So I went out as part of their Red Rideout and basically chatted with their Red owners about Blue Health and more of the psychological benefits of connecting with water and some of the social benefits. So we were working with their sub owners so the sub owners can be a bit more conscious of some of the benefits that they're gaining from their stand up paddling and therefore amplify the impact of those.
0: And it's an interesting topic because there's often this debate about the high quality, the really resilient types of of paddleboards versus the entry-level ones or the cheaper value ones. And it's a similar debate in the clothing industry between sort of disposable fashions and organisations that really put the quality in because it just means that it lasts that much longer. I guess that's always a concern, whichever industry you're considering in terms of environmental concerns. I
1: think so, and I think it is the environmental argument. You, you can always come with, up with the argument, buy, buy cheap, buy twice. But it's essentially for me, if I'm going to work with an organization, there needs to be some conscience there around the environment and some questioning around things like the circular economy and what's actually happening at end of life with the product as you're at that design stage. So, yeah, it's a really it's a really lovely fit and they, they're just good people. They're good people that really want to encourage people to get out on the water and enjoy it and have conscience whilst they're doing that, so we've also been you know, talking about the impact that that we could have on wildlife as part of that, so that their owners are really aware of the wider systemic impact of them going out for their recreation time.
0: Brilliant, and that leads us rather neatly onto one of the two subjects that I really wanted to speak to you about, which is your role in terms of wildlife and the environment and through talking about the work that you do, what I wanted to do is is to share a bit more knowledge for our paddleboarders out there internationally about behaviour and and the sort of ecosystems that they can see out there, which obviously is a great joy to us all, but also to make sure that we don't inadvertently and accidentally impact those populations. So before we get into the detail of that, I'm contractually obliged to ask you about this one, Lizzie. I'm sure you know what's what's coming. Because I saw your name in the Times over the summer in a role that you've got as a volunteer for the British Divers Marine Life Rescue, where you provided some personal coaching services to what was probably the most challenging individual you delivered this to, which is a large three-year-old walrus called Wally who was lost and lying up on one of the Scilly Isles while recovering before he headed back up to the Arctic. Just tell us about that because you were absolutely everywhere. And did you come up with any theories as to why he was so far away from home?
1: So, yes, so so I, I was called out to go to the Isles of Scilly in um, which they like to be called the Isles of Scilly rather than the Scilly Isles. Um, basically, mm. as, as as a volunteer for British Divers Marine Life Rescue, uh, certainly my coaching skills were part of the communication around that, but that wasn't particularly whilst I was, while I was being called, called out. Um, yeah, he was out, he was out there causing hassle, as most people are probably aware. It was very globally um, present in the media around the impact that he was having upturning boats basically a lost walrus supposed to live, be living in the Arctic and he'd found himself very, very far south. So my role was predominantly to observe his behaviour and to encourage people to uh, accommodate him and to work out ways of accommodating him. So we worked with Cornwall Seal Group Research Trust, we worked with the Isles of Sydney Wildlife Trust, various other organisations like Natural England, the Marine Management Organisation and IFCA, which is fisheries, to come up with a plan around how could we accommodate him uh, to basically discourage him from getting onto boats and built a pontoon. So the story was, yeah, the story was in the media a lot. Um, essentially, he was, we believe that he was in the wrong location because of climate change. We believe that we are likely to be getting a lot more of these larger animals displaced through to um, melting, melting ice caps, for example. We're getting animals who are coming way, way out of their normal, normal environments, so out of habitat species, for example. Um, And my role was predominantly to allow him to get fit and fat to enable him to swim back home, uh, which is easier said than than done because he was not getting the rest that he needed. Because even when we managed to provide a pontoon for him to be his safe rest space, people basically disturbed him pretty much 24-7. So one day I observed him get disturbed every three minutes. Um, and that included people on small boats, um, basically circling his pontoon because they wanted to get their Instagram shot, their perfect selfie, um, and stand-up paddleboards as well. People on stand-up paddleboards, literally taking their stand-up paddleboard within a foot of him, reaching out with selfie sticks and GoPros to um, pretty much touch him to take photographs. Um, kayaks, every single watercraft you could imagine circled this pontoon and pretty much hounded this poor animal whilst he was trying to get his sleep and rest and the biggest thing is i think education i think people really didn't recognize that it was a big deal him being disturbed so he wasn't showing signs Mm. of aggression he was he's you know they called him wally so because he'd been given a name um he he was seen as this soft cuddly Animal once he'd stopped once he'd stop destroying things up until the point that he got his pontoon he was feared and there was major panic and anger around boats being destroyed but once he had his pontoon everything shifted and it was like he was this tourist attraction and therefore to be observed and seen and marvelled at so I think three different three different reasons he was getting disturbed one was absolute fascination in his magnetism so he was just far too beautiful that people couldn't control themselves and just decided to get too close to him for that reason. Second one, I think is education. And we just don't know enough about these animals. We don't in the UK have large animals that we spend a lot of time around. So therefore it's, we're not wary enough of them. We don't really realize that even if he's not showing signs of aggression, if an 800 kilogram animal falls off that pontoon and you happen to be on your stand-up paddleboard next to him, that's not going to be a good ending Mm. for you or him. Uh, so education was a bit was a big element for us and then the third element which is not such a great one um, and not necessarily politically correct to say but is entitlement there were a number of people who were asked very nicely to not spend not circle him and still just disregarded that advice Um, so protecting marine wildlife is is really tricky when it comes to disturbance we currently have a petition out to uh, encourage laws around disturbance of grey seals, for example, because at the moment they aren't protected in relation to being disturbed. And if they are disturbed, if their sleep is disturbed, because they haul out to sleep, as does the walrus, and rest, if their sleep is disturbed, they don't get the energy that they require in order to thrive in life. So, um, So education and some form of statutory support is something that is massively needed from marine wildlife. So yes, my role out there was to keep the peace, but also enable him to get strong in order to enable him to move on, um, which, which he did. And he moved on to Ireland and then went off to Iceland. So he made a swim from Ireland to Iceland, which is around 900 miles in 22 days. So we know that he's up in the north and we, we presume that he's pretty much home now, which is pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah, I saw those news reports. That, that's great to hear, and c- congratulations, because I know that was that was challenging. Because as you mentioned earlier on, you had to deal with the, the the local anger and so on around it. But relating to that, we've had about eighteen months of staycations, and coastlines have been particular pot particularly popular. Um, Where you are in Cornwall is always very popular, but it's been the same all the way across the coastline of the UK. And I guess people have generally been holidaying in their country for obvious reasons. And holidaying near the the sea has been great for our collective mental health. But as you mentioned, it hasn't been great for some of the larger aquatic wildlife. So it'd be great if we can have a bit more of a detailed chat about seals uh, because as a responsible tribe of paddleboarders we want to ensure that we don't leave any trace and that we properly appreciate the the nature and the the benefits of seeing animals in their natural habitat. But we also want to make sure that we don't cause them any damage themselves as a result of our activity. So, so just going to seals, I don't know whether there are any more seals about at the moment, or if they're just being talked about more, but there appears to be more human-seal interactions at the moment. And coming back to that Instagram-type mentality and people learning things about stuff on uh, facebook i've seen an assessment of um of seals that they're the labradors of the sea when they're actually wild animals so how should paddleboarders behave when they're on the water and how should they behave particularly around seals when they're say on the beach or on the rocks should they go for a closer look yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, great question. So um, so if we start at the shore and then go into the water, I guess makes sense. So on the shore, if you see a seal on the shoreline, it is likely resting. So seals haul out onto land to rest and digest their food. And therefore, if you see a seal on the shoreline, you should be as far away from it as you possibly can be. If a seal can see you, then you're too close. So if a seal's looking at you, then you're too close. So we, t- we kind of assess Instagram shots like that. So when you get an Instagram shot where somebody's got a seal looking straight down the lens of their camera and they think it's a great photograph, for us as marine mammal medics, that's, that's kind of the worst possible photograph that you can have uh, because it basically means that, that seal was very aware that you were there. So you'll see organizations such as British Divers, Marine Life Rescue and Cornwall Seal Group Research Trust will seldom put photographs or never put photographs of seals looking straight down a camera lens online because we don't want to promote that as okay. The exception to that rule will be potentially if we were taking a photograph of an animal that we were going to rescue. So if it was a seal pup and it happens to be that we're getting a shot of that seal pup to get its body conditioned just before we actually assessed, you know, physically handled that animal and assessed it, then that might be different. But generally, we advise if you want to take photographs of seals in the wild, in the wild then you use a very, very long lens. If a seal happened to be looking in your direction, that you make it very, very clear that you are using a long lens so you don't encourage people to get too close to them. There's a big selfie culture around people wanting to get close to these charismatic animals. Um, and it's we need to recognise that we're doing them harm by doing that. If you see a seal on land and it looks like it's in trouble, slightly different, that's that's um, certainly in the UK, the phone number to call would be British Divers Marine Life Rescue. And again, give that animal space, encourage people to stay away from it, uh, keep dogs on leads if people have got dogs with them, and call British Divers Marine Life Rescue and a medic will come out to assess what's going on with that seal. So it's slightly different if that animal looks like it's injured, um, and predominantly yeah, that would be seal pups. And if you see a seal that's a tiny little white coat, which at this time of year in the UK, we will have lots and lots of babies because it's pupping season here. Again, really, really all the more important to keep as much distance as possible and call British Divers Marine Life Rescue. If you go and handle that seal pup, its mom, when its mum comes back from feeding, will likely reject that seal pup because it'll have your smell on it. So quite often people think that they're helping or they might pick up seal pups and attempt to put them back in the water. If a seal pup's on land, it's on land for a reason. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, it's, it, it's a mammal. It, it needs to be on the land to breathe and it might be exhausted and having a rest. And you throwing it back in the water could be exactly what kills it because it doesn't have the power or energy to swim. So that's that's kind of the on-land piece and the same, the same applies for nesting seabirds so being really aware of where they're at uh, you know, local nesting sites and um, being aware that you could be disturbing those those sites simply by going out to enjoy that blue space. Uh, and in the water, seals may well approach you on a stand-up paddleboard in the water and our, our advice is to not really engage with them. If a, if a seal becomes too habituated with people, it will then get into trouble. It'll it'll then associate pe- people as friendly when people are actually a threat to marine wildlife. Uh, we have seals in Newquay Harbour and St Ives Harbour who have become so habituated to people, and people have even fed them. And what what happens is those animals then approach boats and get hit by propellers on boats, or they get fishing hooks. In their faces or in their bodies and come a cropper that way or they can get caught up in entangled in fishing nets because they haven't associated people with being um not necessarily helpful for their health so if seal if seals approach you in the water um you know be, be calm be calm but it's it's not an opportunity for you to play with them and they are charismatic and beautiful and it can seem like this amazing encounter but and for that moment it might be brilliant for you but you're not doing that animal any good in the long term because that animal will learn to approach people. they do investigate with their mouths so again you know seals seals have got very very sharp teeth and they do investigate with their mouths so it's really possible that you can get an inadvertent bite from a seal in which case you would need to go uh, to have antibiotics for that so you want to avoid that at all costs really. Um, so being aware of that and touching marine life, so touching seals, touching. And we had Nick, the dolphin, the, the social solitary dolphin that, um, or solitary social dolphin that came in and um, swam with a few people and people were stroking him. And, and we gave out warnings that the chances are he would become too august, accustomed to being around people and get hit by a boat. And guess what? A couple of weeks later, he was hit by a propeller strike in Ireland. It's exactly what our posters had said. Please leave this animal alone but people couldn't resist, couldn't resist um, his charisma. So we are not necessarily good for marine mammals in that way and, um, and certainly not seeking out um, in, interactions with seals um, is not a good thing. If you stand up paddling around the coast and you see um, areas of haul-out areas where there are seals hauled out on rocks, again, that's their rest space and you're a threat to them if you're getting into that space. So you need to take yourself away from that area if a seal pup is spooked when it's hauled out on high rocks, or a, or a colony of seals is, what can happen is they can spook into the water. They'll move really quickly across the, across the rocks, and they get injuries. They get cuts on their bodies from the rocks. You can have pups killed in stampedes. You can have pregnant mothers lose their lose their pups and miscarry due to being spooked by people. So um, it's it's a really tricky subject for us as marine mammal medics because we want people to enjoy water and as people uh, get out on the water with new ways of exploring um, untapped areas um, we need to be educated and, and we need people to realize the potential impacts of of doing that on our marine wildlife so understanding you know where 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 these areas are to avoid uh, understanding about tides you know understanding how and when seal pups haul seals haul out for rests and being mindful of it being their space and sensitive times
0: of year I've certainly learned a huge amount from that. So what's your assessment of of the number of of seals out there? Because we've seen sightings up and down the Thames and in my local area, which hasn't necessarily happened before. Do you think that the numbers are on the increase? Do you think this is a result of of climate change and their environments changing Or, or, or have they always been there and we just haven't seen them?
1: So I mean we, we I think we're just seeing more seeing more seals because people get out and about enjoying the space. We have um we have common seals around the UK, uh lots and lots of common seals um and and we have grey seals predominantly. Yeah, Cornwall has a lot of a lot of grey seals. The UK actually has thirty four percent know, of the grey seal population global population. So we think that grey seals are plentiful. Um whereas actually our, our, we have 34% of the global population and they're actually globally rare. So in the UK, we might think nothing of seeing a grey seal. Uh, certainly in Cornwall, we might think that's, that's fairly commonplace to come across them. And yet we're really privileged to have such a high proportion of a globally rare species. So, um, so they certainly need protecting. So even though we might appear to be seeing more and more of them, they, yeah, they're, key, they're a keystone part of our of our food chain um, and they and they are a really good indicator of, of how healthy our ocean is uh, because we actually when we when we're out rescuing them we can see very clearly uh, when they've had when they've when they're exhausted and if they're exa- if we're having lots of exhausted pups as a result of more and more storms that's an indicator of climate change you know, the fact that these animals are having to adapt to to us having more and more storms at a time of year that they are in their pupping season when their pups are learning to be seals Uh, those pups only have three weeks with their mothers to learn how to be a seal and then they're on their own in the world and we've got these tiny pups fighting big waves as a result of us messing with the climate we see net entanglements which is an indicator of discarded ghost fishing net uh, which again marine plastics impacting plastics impacting our wildlife so they are great marine indicator species of the health of our oceans and and they need our protection because they're actually most of the battles that they're fighting are the result of human intervention.
0: I know that you are on call for SEAL emergencies there and you're having a really busy time at the moment. Just tell us about um, your daily duties and your obligations in terms of SEALs in your local area.
1: Yeah, I yeah, will do. So, I'm, so I work for myself. I'm a Blue Health coach. As part of that, I've got a very, very strong thread of corporate social responsibility around looking after our ocean and i don't see the two things as separate i see it all about blue health it's all about blue health and well-being for nature and we're part of nature so i do a lot of volunteering i volunteer with surface against sewage i volunteer with ghost Net Busters, but actually british divers marine life rescue uh, i don't work for them i'm a volunteer they get around a third get around a third of my time pro bono Um, and British Divers Marine Life Rescue is a charity and it's predominantly run by volunteers pretty much most of the um, man and woman power is is volunteer led Um, and we basically we respond to marine mammals in distress it's a bit like the coast guard for marine wildlife so we are the first emergency service for marine wildlife in trouble on our shores so that could be a whale gets washed in and stranded on a shoreline it could be a dolphin it could be a porpoise so the cetaceans on our shoreline and our medics we're all on a call-out system member of the public will call in that animal our medics will respond and we will assess that animal and see if that animal is uh, viable to be refloated uh, with with the help of a vet if it is viable to re- be refloated we'll we'll administer first aid to the animal and get that animal back out into the ocean and if it isn't we'll take the take the steps to um, end that animal's suffering in a dignified and and calm way through euthanasia and remove that animal from the ecosystem. Um, And then we also respond predominantly to seals. So uh, we have thousands of call-outs per year across the UK to seals in distress. And that can be for all sorts of reasons, as I've already mentioned. Again, it's a call-out system. You have a text goes off and so it says there's a seal on this beach and it happens to be near you. Can you respond? And our medics um, turn up to respond to that pup. We've recently built a seal, our very first seal hospital in Cornwall. Uh, we have lots of different areas around the UK where medics have pups overnight at their homes, for example, administering first aid until they can go to larger rehabilitation centres. And this year we've, we've opened a seal hospital um, here in Cornwall, which is the first purpose-built ten pen hospital that british divers have built so that's quite exciting um, to have that facility and that's to provide critical care once those animals have been rescued again before they go to larger rehabilitation centers to be made fat and fit to get that back out Uh, british divers marine life rescue are very focused on not keeping animals in captivity so so our aim is to encourage and animals to thrive out in the wild
0: so fat and fit, very much uh, the watchword uh, for yeah. seals. So there's, yeah. there's some fantastic work going on there. And of course, we will um, link to that organisation and all the organisations that we mention here in the show notes. And um, just to finish off in terms of wildlife, you mentioned nesting birds. One thing that we tend to come across at various times of the year, certainly on the rivers, are swans. And uh, swans are often seen as paddle borders, as as being aggressive. And I guess some are, but for a reason. And we had a a situation on one of my local Rivers, I think about a year ago, where some paddle pushed a family of swans out of their particular territory. And as a result, it didn't end well at all for the signets of that family who were attacked by another territorial swan a little bit upriver. So it's just generally about being really considerate about the wildlife who live in what area you're paddling. You're a guest there, but and um, the idea is is just to leave them completely undisturbed and and avoid any form of interaction with them, because, as you say, they you know you're just not helping them in the slightest, even if it happens to be quite a good picture for your instagram yeah
1: i I, I totally agree you are, that, that idea of being a guest is is a really good one to hold and and sit in their perspective any animal that feels under threat. Um, is going to be defensive, and I, I, I prefer the word defensive than aggressive. With swans or with seals, you, know, you with a seal, if you if you push into its territory, you are likely to get bitten, and it's they their bites are not pleasant. Similar with similar with um, with swans, you know they're going to be defensive, and and the fact that people created that impact for that family of swans is, um, I would imagine, devastating for those people as well. I can't imagine that they, you know because it generally is inadvertently um that we create this to create this impact so mostly people aren't deliberately causing causing displacement of wildlife and um and you want you just don't want to be that person you don't want to have that sort of experience when you're out enjoying space
0: and you mentioned about your other work so surfers against sewage um, your regional representative i know that you've been doing a huge amount of work in terms of reducing plastic use and a lot of beach clear-ups there but Obviously, the clue's in the title. It's a, a UK um, organisation that was set up for a particular reason. And as we speak, there's a rather disappointing <laughs> legislation pushed through centrally about that. Um, I know that there are huge numbers of the paddleball community who are absolutely incensed and uh, we don't like to get political on this. Show, but please write to your MP. Just you take take us through that legislation that's uh, recently uh, been signed through.
1: So, um, so again, rather than getting too much into the, into the legislation, Surfers against sewage was started was started by by a group of surfers who wanted clean recreational water users. Now, in the UK, it's you know it's legal to um, allow combined sewer outlets to basically pump out effluent into our into our ocean. So untreated effluent into ocean, which is for lots of countries that would be absolutely hor- horrific to think to even think about that. So there was an op- there's an opportunity for legislation to stop that, um, and yet our government haven't support haven't supported that. So our government thinks believes that it's okay for us to continue to pollute our pollute our water with untreated uh, untreated sewage, which is pretty disappointing. For certainly approaching COP twenty six, that you would imagine that that would be something that um, that in the year 2021, with the infrastructure that we have available to us um, and the levels of creativity and engineering uh, at our disposal, um, that that we'd be able to be a little bit more progressive in our thoughts around how do we protect the ocean when it's so important for our collective health. So, um, surfers against sewage campaign at lots of different levels. Uh, as an organisation, we work with things like grassroots cleaning up the beach. So there's that very much remedial action of. Picking up marine plastics and microplastics on our beaches, through to lobbying for politicians to make policy changes to protect our ocean, um, and that's everything from sewage um, through to climate-related conversations, through to uh, manufacturers of very, various different products, so low in- like encouraging low-impact products, through to championing circular economy around waste. So it's it's not really. It is currently very much very topical about sewage, but it's, it's not really surface and sewage anymore. It's, it's about how do we protect our ocean um, and how, therefore, do we protect our collective health? And therefore, there's lots of strands to it. I think lots of people for a while thought the surface against sewage were just about plastics because there was the Plastic Free Communities campaign and, um, and single-use plastics. Yeah, it has a massive, massive impact um, on so many different things in term- that relate to climate change. But but single-use plastics are very much a gateway conversation to talking about carbon. Essentially, it's just that it's something very tangible that people can think about their use of single-use plastics. So it enables people to take that first step towards taking action to make collective difference. So yeah, we're we're, um, as a as a volunteer rep with with um, Surface Against Sewage, we're very much focused on what can each what difference can each individual make um, and. And sometimes we can look at, look at climate change as something that's so big and vast that we can't do anything about that. Um, and yet every single action that you take matters.
0: And it's this legislative focus, which is so important, you know, not to minimize any beach cleanups or anything like that, which is super, super important to go up there and just remove all of those horrendous plastics wherever you find them. But it's all about feeding information back to organisations like Surfers Against Sewage or Planet Patrol, Lizzie Carr's organisation, where you can measure the brands and that are, are causing this level of pollution and influence that change at a high level. Yeah, we do,
1: we do. We do brand. We do brand audits as well. So when we're out on the beach, we do brand audits, and it's the same. It's the same villains that you see come up over and over again. So encouraging brands to think about what they're giving to their giving their consumers so their consumers if their consumers then act irresponsibly um there can be less of an impact because again quite often we like to target and focus different parts of the globe and say oh well the issue is in this part of the globe and look at their trash it's like well actually there has to be there has to be responsibility about the people who are pumping plastic into environments that just don't have the infrastructure to be able to cope with it so um so it's around yeah it's that top down and bottom up approach uh, the, a good a friend of mine, good friend of mine, Steve Wilson. who's part of the Story of Stuff. That's a great link as well to look at in terms of having a look at their work. Uh, Steve's over in Berkeley. Um, have a look at the Story mm. of Stuff if you if you want to gain more understanding of the wider circular economy.
0: Links in the show notes, and then just finally, Ghost Net Busters. Could you just explain a little bit about ghost nets and your efforts to to help address that problem?
1: Yeah, happy to. So we had, um, we have on Perrenporth Beach, based on the the Atlantic Drift, we have an end of Perranporth Beach which is Penhale Sands that tends to collect a lot of marine litter from all over the globe. So you can actually see see where it lands this litter and, and track where things come from. And over the last few years, we were getting very, very large ghost fishing nets, so fishing nets that are huge nets that have been um, either abandoned, lost, discarded for some reason. They've ended up in the ocean not attached to a boat and therefore drifting and catching marine wildlife whilst they do that because they continue to fish even if they're even if they're not attached to a boat and and ending up on our shoreline so we were recovering those and for a while we didn't really have anything to do with them so we would pick them up these nets that might be half to three quarters of a tonne huge huge nets we're talking about here and they would then end up being going to landfill which was one step better than having them drifting around in the ocean, catching marine life unnecessarily, but it wasn't a great solution. And then we came across our friends, Odyssey Innovation. So again, that's a great link to put into the show notes. And uh, Rob Thompson at Odyssey Innovation actually was a pioneer of of recycling ghost fishing net. So he was actually one of the founders of the Ocean Recovery Project. Uh, He now has got the marine net recovery scheme and the – and the basic ocean recovery project. And he has a scheme through Exeter City Council, so it's quite southwest-based, but he is looking to expand that more across the UK, where we, we as ghost Net Busters go out similarly to the SEAL call-out system. We have volunteers across the whole of Devon and Cornwall, uh, all in different regions or areas. And if a ghost fishing net gets called in to us on our shore, we can get our volunteers out there to recover it. And that net gets recovered. It gets put into an Odyssey Innovation skip. So we have a collection system and some guys, a guy called Matt Holland, who's part of Exeter City Council, they will collect those ghost fishing nets and those ghost fishing nets come back into a system where we close the loop and, that, and basically that net gets shredded and made into pellet to then be made into products such as, or well, all sorts of products so people can then buy a plastic pellet that is from marine recycled net. Uh, important to note, lots of different organisations do buy this this, this pellet, um, and that's really amazing when they can promote their products as marine recycled plastic. Uh, what's great about Odyssey Innovation is they're actually the guys that do all the hard graft and do all the work around getting it to that stage. So we're volunteers as Ghost mm-hmm. Net Busters. We get the ghost net in, and then Rob and Rob and his team are actually the guys that do the hard part around how do you turn that net into pellet and um and rob creates what what rob creates is rob creates these ocean recycled hand planes so the the plastic can come back into being um being used as for recreational activity and that brings in funds to help him continue the work that he does around recycling and he also makes marine recycled kayaks and um, and he gifts a lot of those to marine uh, marine conservation groups to go out and do paddle for plastic so as, um, as an organisation, Odyssey Innovation are hugely focused on encouraging um, sustainability when it comes to um, championing the circular economy.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And, and I know our episode sponsors, Starboard, also use discarded um, nets. I, I believe they're working to a similar scheme in order to integrate that into their, their products as well. So Brilliant. it is very heartening. That, that that there are these innovators out there looking at, at ways to process this waste and to, to repurpose it. Incredible. And, you know, just in terms of the positive sides of the story, one reason why the environmental focus has been such a theme in, in this show all the way through, actually, is that people's experience on paddle boards has really connected them to that environment. Because if you were just walking by the river, you wouldn't necessarily see all of the detritus and the and the waste and all the horrendous stuff that gets um, cast up there so it really has sparked a an interest in beach cleanups in river cleanups and uh, environmental action which is really heartening and and that kind of brings us a little bit into uh, the next section of the show because clearly this is a show of two halves <clears throat> about blue mines and one of the things that um Wallace J. Nickel in his book Blue Mind talked about is that exposure to water does help to make you become a water warrior and that leads to a greater concern about the water environment. I know you've been very much inspired by his work and, and Blue Mind quite apart from your own personal experience of the water and as a coach you used you use the ocean environment to help your clients achieve changes in their lives through a program of blue health. And I know that uh, you obviously do that where you are in Cornwall. You've also done that in California. And at the moment, I guess you do that quite a lot virtually as well. Could you just explain a little bit about how you got to, to that situation of being an ocean personal coach?
1: So I describe myself as an ocean advocate, Um, even though a lot of what I do is ocean activism as well. And ocean advocacy is around using every single opportunity to to champion and protect our ocean. So I started coaching full-time at the beach back in 2009, and that was predominantly because I set up my coaching business here in Cornwall at that time. And I was more intuitively aware of the fact that time around the ocean did me good, and therefore I wanted to encourage other people to experience that. I got heavily into environmental psychology. So at that point in time, it wasn't called Blue Health. It was literally the very early stages of exploring how might nature and nature connectedness help us. Uh, So I got quite heavily into that back in 2009. and was coaching at the beach, taking people on coaching adventures. And at that point in time, taking things like uh, various different modalities, coaching modalities such as NLP, Um, and spiral dynamics and various psychometrics that I'd learned from the corporate world and working with clients out on the beach um, exploring their life and what was important to them in that environment and it started to evolve really quickly into conversations that were more about storytelling and life and the universe and everything on it more drawing on things from 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 the world of philosophy and um and and your personal narratives and as a professional coach so I trained as a professional coach back then too um I was bringing in things from all different areas of my life so I'd I'd worked with animal rescue with dogs with control orders and exploring behavioral modeling which yes links with NLP but also it's it's just about using our senses to observe shifts in behavior and shifts in energy and work with people from an energetic and resonance perspective so I was bringing in those sorts of modalities I trained as a yoga teacher so brought in a load around you how are we breathing in this space and what's what's that doing for us uh i free dived so so uh yeah, didn't even mention free diving i free dived so breath you know how we, how we work with our breath and connection and heart rhythm that side of things became important and um so i was coach jay i'm good friends with jay author of blue mind um uh, jay says you were doing blue mind before it was called blue mind it's like well yes and you know i loved i absolutely love jay's work and i love his book and and it's, it's a way of, you know, Jay, Jay champions the ocean and he's a huge mentor and I'm a huge advocate of his work. And, um, and essentially he brought great language to, to what it is that we're experiencing when we're on the coast and, or in water full stop, because Jay champions water in all, in all its forms, as do we all, because we know the ocean starts, starts out the stream. So mm-hmm. I was coaching from, yeah, 2009, um, and evolving a coaching practice that was, something different from a to b coaching it was definitely it's it's definitely become more about emergent coaching more about how do we show up daily um, how do we recognize the connection between our thoughts our feelings our behavior and nature and see nature as part of us rather than something separate to us i don't use the term uh, the beach is a resource i don't talk about using water um, to work as a coach you know work with water it's very much a partnership and the environments and nature around is really, I'm in partnership and we, we work together. We're part of this ecosystem. i um, got heavily into ecocentrism. So, you know, how do we, how do we ask questions from that space of thinking rather than this anthropocentric space that we tend to live our lives where we think we're at the top of the tree and everything else is in service of us. I met Jay back in 2014. So I'd already been coaching at the beach for five, five years by that time. Um, our, yeah, you know, our ide- ideals, yeah, you know, they they align as as friends as with lots of members of the Blue Mind community. So I champion his work. I champion things like 100 Days of Blue, which is a mechanism for encouraging people to get out and connect with connect with water in a way that inspires others to do the same. Um, and and you, know, you you hear we have groups like the Blue Tits, uh, which is a group down in Cornwall, which is I think they're now all the way across the UK. I think it started in Wales. Mm. Uh, where they, they talk about their their experiences in water and they say, oh, yeah, it's great. And they start to get excited and interested in the psychology of that. They start to get interested in the social elements of that. And they're, and it's it's lovely because I don't need to say to them, oh, yes, what you're experiencing is because they're, they're mm. experiencing it in a very organic way. And, and they're just living and breathing blue mind or blue health without necessarily even needing to label it, place a label on it. But I yeah I do talk about it because it's a big part of my work. But in those social situations, it's just great to see people very organically uh, experience that state of that meditative, you know, lightly meditative state of connection, um, and and experience all around all the elements of awe and wonder that come with that, and how that impacts the way that we can think creatively. So yeah, so I've been blue health coaching now since yeah for a long time, a long time now, and it evolves, and 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 more science comes out. Yeah, you know, more science comes out, more books come out, uh, different perspectives come out. And, um, and we have, we have, you know, we have huge, hugely profound insights out on the coast, out on the coast that, um, that that space facilitates. And, um, and you know, the coast holds space for us to explore, explore being more fluid in the way that we show up. Um, yeah. And I trained and I try, I did a master's, I did a master's during that time, um, around ambiguity and fluidity so exploring how do we how do we experience non-certainty as human becomings, and um and that was all around spending time in the literal zone so in that space between land and sea uh, where everything is continually shifting so recognizing that that fluidity within us and how do we how do we encourage ourselves to show up with a little bit more fluidity in a world that's continually changing that was a lot that was a long answer wasn't it
0: <laughs> you know lots of comments to come come out of that i think just for your for your last point obviously the, the sea and the beach is a metaphor you know if there's one thing that we can be sure about things change and a lot of people are resistant to change so i expect that the sea in the beach environment would provide a a perfect metaphor for people moving, um, you know, circumstances. And there's been a lot of changes. I mean, there's always changes, but, you know, particularly over the last few years, people have, have become very, very aware of how things can very, very quickly change. And and obviously the, the aspects of mental health, because Nichols articulated it in a brilliant way um, and brought it alive for us. And all of the conversations that I have on this show, have to one extent or another involved those sorts of conversations. From an episode a couple of weeks ago with Dave Knight, who has anxiety issues and has just completed his 365 days of paddling on consecutive days and uh, talking about mental health and also mike tipton who um, is a hardcore scientist who provided the guidelines a lot of the guidelines for the rnli and gb life-saving rescue and loads of other organizations as well what mike tipton said in in Show is that you tend to do a lot of the science around the bad things that happen, but not necessarily the good things. And um, I'm very pleased to see some science starting to trickle out around the benefits of of cold water swimming or cold water immersion and breath work and all of this sort of stuff, which I guess um, the yogis knew back in the day and went to because it helped them, but which we're only starting to really focus on now. I, yeah, completely, completely
1: agree. And, and neuroscience around us being more embodied, embodied in our decision making uh, is hugely powerful. Around that, certainly the physical aspect of things like cold water immersion. So really being able to connect with your entire nervous system when it comes to making decisions, which then can encourage you to make wiser choices about uh, your actions in the world, and therefore question the impact of those actions.
0: So. So tell us about some of the, the sort of coaching that, that you do with people. And obviously, I don't expect you to name names, but if, if you could just give us an example of some of the the changes that, that you've seen in people who you've engaged with through your Blue Health coaching.
1: Yeah, so predominantly I work with people that don't perceive themselves as broken um so although all of us have got sketchy things within our within our worlds that when you're having deep conversations those sorts of things can bubble to the top um but i work with people that either run businesses and they they just don't feel excited about what's happening for them in the world they've become maybe a bit cynical they become maybe a bit blinkered in their world view where materialism can kick in and that that, that they want more of that broader perspective to feel a little bit more alive day to day so i have people that i've worked, you know, worked with a lot of people that run businesses like that they they on the surface look successful but they're just not feeling it or their goals all of their goals have seemed to be things that are very personal goals about personal attainment uh, versus what what has the, what has a wider impact in the world so tend to work with individuals that end up being a lot more Um, aware of their corporate social responsibility and i don't really like that term but i use it because it's a term that's that's recognized by people but response their their responsibility or being advocates for the planet or being really aware of setting goals that are more than a that that refer to more than 100 years so mainly yeah mainly the guys i work with is it's about extending your timeline so that you recognize that the impact of the choices that you're making right now go beyond your grandchildren if you're going to have grandchildren we tend to think very much in terms of as, as far back as our grandparents and possibly as far forward as our grandchildren we don't really think about our, about deep time and the fact that we're not here for that for that long and and therefore there are implications to every choice we make so um that can be organizations thinking about the sustainability. That could be individuals thinking about their life choices. Uh, that can be everyth- everything from people wanting to move to another country to work for humanitarian organisations, having come out of a corporate role, or it can be people going through significant life changes around their health, for example. So um, it is hugely broad. I work with a lot of people who work in media, so a lot of a lot of guys who make um, like nature films. So they're already pretty nature connected, which is possibly why they gravitate to coming to spend time at the beach. Um, and I work a lot with referrals. So you end up with pockets coming from different, different or different kind of fields, professional fields and, um, and you know nature filmmakers. I've had a lot of those recently. Um, I went through a phase of working with a lot of solicitors, which was fascinating because their world was so different, so different from mine, but you have one or two people that come to the beach and have that experience of, I do a day, I do everything from hour and a half sessions at the beach through to we do a coastal coaching adventure, which is a day at the coast where we walk along. The coast. We start at one point of the coast and we walk to another point of the coast, around 10 miles through three or four different beaches that have got a lot of different landscape characteristics and and different wildlife that they may well um, come across from a distance. Um, and we work on things that you might work with as an NLP professional because i know that you're NLP, nlp literate so things like limiting beliefs those types of things um but but more so from a existential stance in terms of the why on earth are we here in the first place and um, what does it mean to be purposeful and and how, what is your relationship with with not knowing the answers to everything and what how does that impact your ability to move forward so um so uh, the questions that get asked out on the coast are slightly different well quite different from your traditional coaching conversation where you might say where are you now where do you want to be And what are the steps in between um and it can be yeah, more structured and formulaic whereas we we tend to be walking but certainly not pedestrian in our conversations um, my friend judy stark who's actually also a friend of jay gave me gave me a great quote that i always attribute to her because it's rather than just steal it which is go deep or go home and that's that's the conversations but that, that's the conversations that we have on the coast I'm not um, there's lots and lots of coaches that can work uh, with much more of that surface level stuff around immediate immediacy and attainment, whereas the conversations that we have out on the coast are much more about um so, you know, being um, socially equitable and and thinking about our us being simply an interesting species on a planet and and part of that ecosystem rather than separate to it so and that that impacts people's Yeah, you know, yes we then do some fundamental business planning as and when that that is appropriate and yes it's sometimes appropriate to do some performance coaching but essentially the conversations are about alignment within yourself um, as and as a multiple brain integration techniques to coach as well you know heart head and gut alignment are hugely important within that but also that can, that level of connection and alignment also needs to flow through you and beyond you out into the environment so we talk about in alignment with with the space and place that we're within so it's it's a blend of human geography um environmental psychology coaching various different um, coaching modalities within that um yeah yoga showing up showing up in an aligned way so yeah it's they're, they're quite deep conversations <laughs>
0: As I have this conversation, I'm very aware of the metaphors that I use, and I was going to describe that work on the beach as being a full immersion, which probably it isn't quite. But yeah, absolutely going, going deep. And it just provides that level of, of reflection, which is an additional piece of leverage for people to consider where they are in the world and obviously consider the, the beach as that incredible metaphor of transition
1: yeah and there, i mean there's we as blue health coaches so i train i train blue health coaches so with various different approaches that we might draw draw from when it comes to working with people on the coast but actually recognizing that pretty much everything that you need in terms of promoting insight and awareness um is already there for you when you're out on the coast so so as part of blue health coaching it's it's enabling and encouraging coaches to be able to actually see that so beyond beyond use of metaphor uh, really really connecting with that space so that space becomes becomes a part of the conversation rather than a backdrop to it
0: and then just to talk a little bit more about jay and the conversations and the communication he has made in terms of blue mind we talked a little bit about the the neuroscience of it, there is some clear evidence that that's coming through that exposure to the sea and the coast and to sports and so on does make a, a clear difference to you know anxiety levels, your parasympathetic nervous system, and, and basically calms things down. And and probably one of the well, the most recent example of that that I've seen out there is the management of of PTSD, particularly amongst veterans. And there are a lot of very scarred people coming out of recent conflicts. There's a a fantastic documentary on Netflix at the moment called uh, Resurface, which is all about rehabilitating a lot of these veterans who are in a really, really bad way and connecting them to the water. So, you know that it does have a very very fundamental effect on even some quite significant psychological difficulties doesn't it
1: certainly yeah and Jim Ritterhoff who's part of Force Blues another good friend and part of our blue mind community so um so yes yeah, so it's a great again great film put the link put the link in resurface um and have a look at force blue so the work that force blue have done with with vets um and there's there are lots of different schemes around encouraging people to connect with water uh, for things like anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder and simply just well, wider mental health, mental health benefits. Um, so Jay, yeah, Jay's work, Blue Mind, um, it's, it's not just the book. So the Blue Mind groundswell, as, as he likes to call it, the aim is to decentralize Blue Mind. So it's not specifically about Jay or any of the core guys who were, were there in the early days. It's about Blue Mind being for everybody. And blue mind being a term or a, or a term that everybody acknowledges and recognizes. Oh, that's that feeling that I get when I'm in near on or underwater, and then the ripple effect of that that encourages people to go out there and experience that, so that they gain all those health benefits, but also so that they love that space and give back to and protect that space. So it's very much about that symbiotic relationship. And the blue blue mind, uh, you know, he, he wrote the book. We had lots and lots of different uh, summits over the years where different people from different avenues of life came together so we had poets and musicians and scientists and educators and coaches and and physical trainers and techie people who, who loved water the common denominator being individuals who absolutely loved and connected with water and wanted to explore what on earth is going on for us when it comes to our connection with water and and how do we encourage more and more and more people to be aware of this and have access to it so that so that blue mind is common knowledge? And, it, and whether you use the term blue mind or not, we talked about that earlier, uh, connecting with water being good for us and us protecting that water is common knowledge. And that's very much the aim of Jay's work as an, as an advocate for water. And that's in all different fields. So that's, you know, whether that's in, tourism or real estate or you know or um you know hard hard business, the corporate world through to through to the recreational world there's lots of different avenues for blue health and blue mind to be relevant and we believe as a as a collective or as a groundswell that 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 is very possible it's very possible to to encourage more and more people to be able to access healthy wild waters and that some and actually that it's really important for people to access it those who really need it to be able to access it as well and that's i think where things like the post traumatic stress disorder um guys with the vets you've got bobby lane like so bobby lane i think he's he's in the film resurface he's another good friend he's and he's currently studying nlp as well uh, is bobby mm-hmm. like and he's getting some of the structures now behind what actually has he he's been experiencing which is really cool because he's He's another person who's experienced those benefits very organically. And then we have conversations about, about the NLP elements of it that he's now learning about. And he's like, oh, that's what that is. And, that's, and that makes him even more fascinated. It doesn't, it doesn't dilute, you know, just because you explain the magic, it doesn't dilute the magic. It just gives you some structure behind what's, what's actually happening for you when you are in this blue space. And it's great that the science is backing up the, that, 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 that there's very tangible impact on our brain and yeah I I definitely refer to the brain as our nervous system not the brain being something that is above our neck we actually had a guy called Nick Sarve Sarve, uh, came to one of the Blue Mind Summits Um, where was he deep that was out in DC that one and um, he was talking about um, decision science and and parts of the brain and how they fire up at different times and we had a great chat around the wider neuroscience of the heart and the gut and 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 how we have neurons throughout our whole nervous system, and I thought he'd complete as a neuroscientist, proper scientist, proper scientist. Uh, I thought he'd, uh, mm. I thought he'd, he'd be like, oh yeah, right, well that's a load of rubbish, isn't it? And he was fair play to him. He said, he said, I completely concur that we have the ability to process information throughout the whole of our nervous system through neurons that are displaced, dispersed. He said, I, as a neuroscientist, I work with an extremely tiny part of the brain. You 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 have to zone in so specifically. He said that that actually being mindful of the interconnections between the whole of your nervous system, of course, every aspect of your nervous system is going to impact on how you show up. and when we're nearing and in and around water, we know that our entire nervous system is operating in a very different way. And for me at the coast, you know for me at the coast, people who have anxiety, they hold their body in a different way, they breathe in a different way, even without getting in the water. Um, as soon as you move on sand, you walk in a different way. Your vestibular system's working in a different way. You have a different sense of proprioception. Put that onto a stand-up paddleboard. You know you're balancing in a different way. Your whole body is operating in a different way, and um, and therefore the way that you process emotion is going to automatically be shifted as a result of that, and that then facilitates a conversations that that
0: flow very differently. And you combine that with social contacts with maybe a bit of cold water and exposure to nature. And that's a quite incredible stack of benefits. And I think yeah. anyone listening to has an intuitive understanding of the benefits in the water and the ocean. I guess they wouldn't be on a stand up paddleboard otherwise. But um, sure. Lizzie, I really appreciate your time and, and taking us through those two fascinating areas of, of study and really they're they're more interconnected than you would think at, at first glance, aren't they?
1: They're completely
0: interconnected because it's an
1: ecosystem if yeah if if I don't advocate for the ocean, the, the ocean definitely advocates for me, so why would I not advocate for it?
0: So Lizzie, thanks so much for talking and sharing your knowledge. Where can we find out more about you?
1: So my website is going blue, and on Instagram I'm Lizzie underscore l. Uh, or Going Coastal Blue, you can find find either of those. If you want to find out about British Divers, Marine Life Rescue, they're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, various different avenues to find out about them. They're really close to my heart, Surface Against Sea, various different links that you're going to put on anyway. Um, mm. And if you want to find out about becoming a Blue Health coach, if you're a stand-up paddler, it, they fit really well. I've currently trained quite a lot of stand-up paddlers, um, which is great because those people already are connected with the ocean. And it's more about how do you elegantly bring Bring, those, bring that science into practical domain where you can actually work with people to help them feel more connected and more aligned.
0: Elegancy is the key. Well done on all your great work and thanks again for joining us on the show and hopefully at some point we'll catch up on, in or even under the water. Thanks so much Lizzie.
1: That'd be great. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed that chat with Lizzie and please don't forget to check out the show notes for the links referred to in the episode. We're approaching the end of this season and if you subscribe to our newsletter, we can keep you up to date with our bonus episodes and our timelines for the next season, which is coming next year. The SUPFM podcast is produced to connect, inform and inspire the SUP tribe. And as you're a member of that tribe, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the show. And it is a privilege to continue to share these stories with you, to chat to all of my awesome guests and to share this love of our sport. So until next week, I'll see you on the water.